Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifestingpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifesting Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Contingencies. If it is unfashionable to return to the concept of necessity as the basis for human emancipation, it is because a theoretical tradition that forbade this concept and instead demanded that we speak only of contingency is still prevalent. This tradition, however, is prevalent primarily at the heart of first world academia and has little to do with the world as seen from below. When placed in contact with the global masses, the wretched of the earth, such a theoretical tradition might be meaningless, though it is indeed meaningful in the context of this treatise because we have been discussing, from the outset, the problem of these new manifestos, with their endless talk of horizons and hypotheses, manifestos embedded in first world academia. This embeddedness means that, regardless of any attempt to reclaim the quote, totalizing narrative unquote of communism, we are still forced to deal with all of those theoretical critiques that forbade us from speaking of the necessity of communism. For to speak of necessity is to deny the claim that history might be nothing more than contingent moments, incapable of telling us anything significant, and that to demand necessity from this chain of contingency might be tantamount to totalitarianism. In Nietzsche, Genealogy and History, Michel Foucault argued that history should be seen as nothing more than a procession of contingency, where no moment produces the necessary demand for another, and every historical development must be recognized as murderous. To speak of the necessity of revolution in this context is also to speak of a totalizing discourse, another game of power and knowledge that is no more or less valuable than the past and future avalanches of murder which amount to history. Beyond the eternal manifestation of power knowledge, then, there is no such thing as historical development. To imagine progress, even in the qualified sense of successive modes of production, is to subordinate the contingent and ultimately unchanging reality of history to a totalizing narrative. Such an understanding of history can only treat revolutionary moments as further examples of murderous totalization. A revolution is no better than what it is revolting against, ultimately contingent, its claims regarding necessity little more than excuses for the exercise and mobilization of power. According to this interpretation, then, the moment of revolution is simply another meaningless cipher in a swamp of contingent expressions of power knowledge. The Bolsheviks overthrow the Tsarist regime, providing justifications for this revolution, but this is only the point at which one discourse supersedes another. We are told that we cannot assume this event has anything to do with the necessity to sweep the Tsarish regime from the historical stage. Rather, necessities are imagined after the event, imposed on a change of contingency, and are able to masquerade as progressive simply because there has been a violent occupation of the historical stage. The Bolsheviks can invent historical necessity, and convince their revolutionary adherents 
to accept their interpretation, simply because they have successfully replaced one discourse with another. Quote, an event, unquote, Foucault tells us, quote, is not a decision, a treaty, a reign, or a battle, but the reversal of a relationship of forces, the usurpation of power, the appropriation of a vocabulary turned against those who had once used it, unquote. Hence, we discover the emergence of an analysis that can speak only of contingency. Here is a demand to treat history as a series of particular ruptures, connected only to the deployment of power, that rejects a priori all talk of continuity and universality. Due to an almost neurotic desire to avoid totalization, this demand has done, though often unintentionally, great damage to history. This rejection of totalization, however, and the replacement of necessity with contingency, was a logical response to the excesses of revisionism and crude historical materialism. The postmodern currents in thought, that along with capitalism sought to banish communism to the netherworld of theory, cannot be simply dismissed as a petty bourgeois phenomenon, though it most certainly amounts to a petty bourgeois ideology. In some ways, such a position was also a theoretical rejoinder to an equally petty bourgeois deformation of communism that, by the time China's revolution was reversed, was briefly hegemonic. Here was a communism that tended to understand social reality according to the crudest comprehension of social class, an understanding that might have caused even Marx to shudder, that excluded other oppressed social positions and argued that ideologies such as feminism, anti-racism, queer radicalism, etc., were little more than petty bourgeois politics that had nothing to do with the serious business of class struggle. Partially in response to this crude class essentialism, which was a dogmatic desire to adhere to a, quote, pure-unquote Marxism, as if it were ever, quote, pure-unquote, the radical proponents of this new theoretical fad would champion the idea of disunified identity-based struggles because, sometimes influenced by their own experience, the most popular communist understanding of necessity at that time seemed incapable of pulling these other concerns into its orbit. In many ways, this practice was the penalty of the sins of dogmatic and chauvinist communism. And it is worth recognizing this fact and using it as an occasion for reflection. In other words, we need to admit that it was a necessity to take these other concerns into account, to understand how they possibly determine social class, rather than dismissing them as entirely contingent. At the same time, however, the politics produced due to the rejection of a totalizing necessity was a politics that could lead nowhere. Sites of identity-based struggles could only produce a praxis incapable of solidarity. Theories of, quote, intersectionality, unquote, were most often banal, merely a recognition of the fact that multiple moments of oppression and exploitation including economic class, intersect. Simply noting the possibility of intersection, though, is not an analysis. It is an ineffectual truism. These theories were thus incapable of explaining the meaning of this intersection. After all, to provide this meaning would be an act of totalization. Affinity groups, safe spaces, border wars in the names of various categories of oppression— a general theoretical chaos that could produce little more than confusion that amounted to a political limbo. Thus necessity again rears its unpopular head, and those who would reject its logic 
would be entirely uncomfortable with the claim that their praxis of contingency produces also its own necessity. For here, at a point where totalization is rejected as murderous, the valorization of contingency must become entirely necessary. And if we examine the practice of this politics, we are forced to conclude that these politics necessarily lead to the limited practice of social reformism. For what else can identity politics, which has no political content beyond valorizing sites of oppression as radical identities, produce? Not the solidarity and organization that world historical revolutions have taught us are necessary for revolution. Indeed, reformist practice is precisely the concrete result of this type of politics. Its most vocal proponents, if they are active at all, are generally active primarily in struggles for social reform. The hope behind this activity, though, was the hope of movementism, that multiple sites of struggle would become more than the sum of their reformist parts, that the avalanche of multiplicity would produce a radical movement capable of eclipsing the simple unity of past practices. This practice of combining contingency with multiplicity is probably best expressed in Deleuze and Guattari's concept of the rhizome that is meant to replace a revolutionary ideology based on a revolutionary unity. The assumption is that such unity implies totalization, the capture of radical desire. The metaphor of a potato root spreading in innumerable directions is meant to replace the metaphor of a party with roots in the masses. How can we root ourselves in the manner of a tree if the subterranean reality is so vast? Something rhizomatic is required, capable of spreading along multiple trajectories without any apparent unity. Negri and Hart's notion of the multitude, first theorized in empire, is a further development of this concept. Interestingly enough, a young Badu understood the political direction indicated by the theory of the rhizome, and hence the multitude, and was able to predict the emergence of movementism at the centers of capitalism post-1968. Under the anti-organizational pretext, it is not too difficult to see the rejection of the point of view of class. Its theme was the need to add up the revolts, immigrants, women, ecologists, soldiers, prisoners, students, homosexuals, etc., to enumerate the punctual social forces to infinity, but ostensibly to combat anything resembling the political unification of the people's camp, seized in its antagonistic inflection, in its living class being. Organization and its alleged, quote, castrating hierarchy, unquote, make for broad targets. The one of the multiple in revolt is a question of content, of the politics of the people. Some hid behind the blunders of the form, here and there, in order to deny the content. Badly camouflaged behind the hatred of militancy was the hatred of the class struggle. In effect, if the people do not have their own politics, they will enact the politics of their enemies, the political abhorrors of the void, unquote. Thus, in focusing on multiplicity at the expense of unity, and especially at the expense of the primary division between a unified ruling class and the exploited masses whose unity is necessitated by the unity of the former, a reification of the totality of capitalism, the politics of the enemy, is accomplished. Decades later, we have seen the result of these politics. The anti-globalization movement shattered against the unity of the state's totality. 
if Badu has since made a detour from the mindset behind the above quotation, it is only because he has also passed through a period of retreat that has affected his reassertion of the name of communism. Social being does determine social consciousness to a significant extent, and it is doubtful that he would disagree with this axiom. In any case, the desire to replace necessity with contingency and unity with multiplicity is often based on a misunderstanding of these concepts. There is a common misconception about revolutionary necessity that defines this term according to a crude enlightenment concept of linear progress. Here necessity is confused with destiny, as if to argue for the scientific necessity of communism is identical to arguing that communism will necessarily happen, or that it is preordained by history. Thus, if necessity does indeed mean destiny, then it is easy to understand why contingency is seen as preferable. No revolution is fated. The science of history is not the kind of science that automatically determines significant transformations in the mode of production. We cannot claim, however, that communist theory has never dabbled in these simplistic and quasi-superstitious historical claims. Even the great communist leaders and theorists have been wont to argue that communism's necessity was also a destiny, an unavoidable truth produced by the argument of history. Whether or not these arguments were made for rhetorical reasons, or because those making the arguments were living at a specific historical conjuncture, socialism was already established and so communism could be seen as being on its way, ignores the fact that, regardless of the dabbling in antiquated concepts of unlinear progress, many of those who have argued for necessity have also been quite honest in their claims that this necessity might never emerge. As noted previously, Engels claimed that the scientific strength of communist theory was based on the fact that there was a choice, and a choice is never preordained, between a communist future and a capitalist apocalypse. Rosa Luxemburg defined this choice as one between socialism or barbarism. Marx claimed that revolution was a necessity, and once one speaks of revolution, one must also realize that, according to Lenin, revolutions are not spontaneous events, and thus the very fact of organizing a revolution undermines the concept of some unavoidable communist destiny. Mao spoke of even the stage of socialism as being a moment in the revolutionary chain that could be overthrown so that capitalism could be reestablished. To these insights, we can also add the insights of innumerable Marxist academics who have challenged this faded teleological interpretation of necessity for over a century. While it is true that this unlinear concept of revolutionary progress has often been part of a communist discourse, it was never properly part of revolutionary science. There is too much evidence to the contrary, regardless of the occasional and spurious claims in the polemics of its most faithful adherents. The same adherents were also known to make contrary claims, after all, even if some of their more dogmatic readers and militants focused on these throwaway lines regarding some vague notion of a scientific destiny. No critical Marxist devoted to the concept of necessity has truly believed in the inevitability of communism. Only anti-communists and those organizations that made the mistake of accepting this rhetorical discourse believed otherwise. Necessity means only that communism is necessary to solve the problems produced by capitalism, not that its emergence is destined. 
Water is a necessary requirement for human existence, but this does not mean that every human being will have access to water simply because it is a necessity. Theorists whose understanding of communism parallels an anti-communist discourse inherited from the Cold War era continue to assert this story about necessity's synonymity with outdated concepts of unlinear, destined progress. As it would be ignorant to dismiss modern physics due to the errors of the Newtonian paradigm, it is similarly ignorant to dismiss historical materialism due to the past moments of the science that, in any case, were not as erroneous as this anti-communist narrative assumes. But such a dismissal became common sense by the end of the 20th century in first world academic and intellectual circles. Totality, unity, and necessity were replaced with fragmentation, difference, and contingency. It is in this context that the contemporary academic attempts to reclaim communism have manifested. The rejection of necessity, universality, continuity on the part of those who speak of hypotheses and horizons only makes sense if seen as a tendency to reclaim totalization in a manner that will appeal to the theoretical traditions that rejected this totalization in the first place. They desire to again speak of communism, but are unable to properly engage with the history once dismissed as totalitarian. They wish to speak of universality, but end up endorsing particularity in a refusal to examine necessity. The result is a theoretical eclecticism that is only capable of producing, sometimes intentionally, movementist strategies where it is better to tail a disorganized rebellion without goals, without theoretical organization, without a coherence born from revolutionary necessity, than to coherently address the problems raised by the chain of world historical revolutions. But anarchists and left liberals can also claim these movementist rebellions, and the former camp has more reason to adopt this incoherence as an organizational principle. What does a communist analysis matter when it tells us nothing more significant than what the anarchists have been preaching since Bakunin? How does an academic assessment of communism, incapable of actually stepping outside of the framework of history as contingency, contribute anything theoretically significant? All of this recent and abstract talk of horizons and hypotheses is ultimately silenced by these questions. Alter the terminology in these accounts, delete the word communism, and we are back in the same anti-communist framework that these new manifestos claim to transcend. So many of these accounts, from Foucault to the recent academic reclamations of communism, share an implicit disdain for actual revolutionary moments. In the act of disparaging revolution as either totalizing or failing to represent true liberation, they are forced to dismiss those mass movements that fought to establish a better world. Hence these academic fads, whatever their strengths, are in the last instance alien to those people, the wretched of the earth, who are still fighting for the end of capitalism. Collaboration The dead end of contemporary radical theory casts a shadow over any attempt to reignite anti-capitalist praxis. It is no wonder that academics speak vaguely of horizons and ideals, that intellectual groups invent fanciful terms and imaginary insurrections, and that movementism becomes the default practice. We should not be surprised that these new radicalisms that dare to speak the name communism 
are always fashionable amongst the academic left. It is quite normal, and even encouraged, to judge past revolutionary theory boring, predictable, and unworthy of reclamation. When some of us speak of revisionism or opportunism, or any of those conceptual names that were understood and reasserted over and over by past revolutionaries, we are charged with orthodoxy. Compared to those theorists who are constantly inventing new terminologies, here, what is exciting is often defined by what is most conceptually nebulous, we appear anachronistic, old-fashioned, out of step with reality. Occasionally, we might be told that we are alienating people with these old concepts, as if the new concepts are any less alienating, and those responsible for such charges forget that, just decades ago, we would have been charged with the same alienating practice simply by using that old-fashioned word, communism. Let us leave aside, for the moment, the fact that the mass revolutionary struggles at the peripheries since the end of the 1980s to the present draw from this supposedly, quote, orthodox, unquote, theoretical tradition that resonates with their understanding of the world. Let us bracket the fact that this charge of being old-fashioned is also a charge leveled at every significant third-world communist struggle to date, some that are happening even now, and pretend, as some radical theorists indeed pretend, that there are no struggles that matter beyond the centers of global capitalism. Obviously, we cannot discount attempts to conceive of struggle through new concepts. It is indeed dogmatic to adhere to a pure theoretical constellation and to reject all interventions that challenge static ways of seeing the world. At the same time, as discussed, it is equally dogmatic to reject the theoretical tradition that emerged through concrete revolutionary struggle. This may be the worst form of dogmatism, in fact, because it echoes precisely what we were taught was normative by triumphalist capitalist ideology. The question we need to ask, then, is what clarifies the current historical conjuncture, arming the masses with an ideology capable of producing revolution? None of these new manifestos, regardless of how exciting their theoretical approach looks and sounds, is capable of answering this question and thus providing a new framework for revolution. These new approaches simply reassert the same tired theoretical substitutions that have been proposed since the emergence of scientific socialism. They might sound interesting, but do little beyond the echo of their words. Furthermore, could it be that the broad brushstrokes of revolutionary theory that emerged with Marx, passed first through Lenin and then through Mao, provide a simpler and clearer explanation of theory and practice than any of these contemporary approaches that attempt to ignore the theoretical development by classifying it as orthodox and dogmatic? This is not to say that these broad brushstrokes should ignore and dismiss the concepts of parallel traditions. The question simply has to do with what framework is capable of providing a clearer picture of reality so as to produce revolutionary action. In these cynical days, all attempts to mobilize the concepts of past revolutionary movements are treated as out of step with intellectual fashion. While returning to Marx is no longer unfashionable, returning to some of those theories that developed Marxism through revolutionary action is in bad taste. To Keene and the Invisible Committee, for example, associate Marxism-Leninism with fascism, lazily adopting right-wing jingoism and the wisdom of Orwell, while celebrating social chauvinists such as Saad and Nietzsche. Despite conjuring the name of communism, 
it is clear that the Invisible Committee sees those who have actually succeeded in making revolution as their enemy. So better to reconstruct Marxism, if not a vague communism, only slightly influenced by Marx, but just Marx, according to newer and exciting concepts, a fanciful jargon buffet, then draw upon that tired conceptual terrain that was judged as a wasteland by the so-called end of history. But why should we settle for intellectual fads, and why should the practice of revolution be confused with the business of academic fashion? Recall that Marx and Engels broke from academic fashion and chose instead to develop and establish their theory within working-class struggle. By doing so, they achieved something far more significant than they would have produced had they remained within the ivory tower circles, a theory that resonated with those who possessed the concrete need to overthrow capitalism. And though they might have been deemed unfashionable by the academic standards of their time, they produced a revolutionary legacy that eclipses whatever legacy has been left by their once academically popular contemporaries, whose names are only now remembered mainly because of Marx and Engels, Feuerbach, Stirner, Bauer, even During. None of this is to say that we should ignore the fact that the word communism has become rather unfashionable at the centers of global capitalism. This is the reason, after all, for all of these new attempts at reclamation. We should know, however, that communism is unfashionable at the imperialist centers due to decades of anti-communist propaganda combined with a privileged labor aristocracy and the aforementioned, quote, end of history, unquote, discourse. Perhaps the desire to rebrand communism with a new language and costume is an attempt to reconstruct its popularity amongst the anti-communist, quote, middle class, unquote, at the centers of capitalism. A communism that sounds different, but that is secretly the same old communism that we once rejected. Rebranding communism, aside from the commercial logic inherent in such an approach, can only fail if it is aimed solely at the class of people who possess the privilege to wallow in the theoretical obscurantism that is offered as a replacement revolutionary theory. That is, a theory that can only be appreciated by those petty bourgeois intellectuals who believe that conceptual opaqueness implies radicalism. Here it is important to note that even the quote non-academic unquote theories reclaiming communism that have attained a certain level of popularity amongst the first world activist left, i.e. the Invisible Committee, Theory Communiste, Endnotes, various autonomous Marxisms, etc., are accessible mainly to a privileged population that, even if it prides itself on having never gone to university, is still quite distant from the lived experience of the most oppressed and exploited. One of the long-standing problems with our movement as history has been the fact that the mainstream and activist left has largely been composed of people from student and or middle-class contexts. In any case, if these theoretical substitutions do not resonate with the lived conditions of the most exploited and oppressed, but only with those whose class outlook is somewhat elitist, then we must wonder at their revolutionary status. We should not, however, endorse some banal anti-intellectualism and fetishize illiteracy as proletarian. Even the revolutionary theory of yesteryear might at first seem opaque now that large portions of the masses have been socialized, after decades of anti-communism, to forget the concepts that emerged from their struggles. 
There is that theory and an accompanying philosophy that, due to the complexity of the terrain, will necessarily require significant education and study to grasp. Pure mathematics, theoretical physics, philosophy of logic, ontology. But none of these areas of study pretend, at least not regularly, to be theories about making revolution. Hence, we should wonder at those opaque theories that did not emerge from revolutionary struggle, that were imagined by academics usually disconnected from these struggles, but claimed to be the answer to the masses' quandary about making revolution. The point here is not whether or not a theory is difficult to understand. This is a problem that can be solved by making education accessible to the most oppressed and exploited. Rather, whenever we encounter a new theory that speaks of overthrowing the existing social order and claims to offer the conceptual tools for doing so, we should ask whether these tools are capable of providing a concrete analysis of concrete conditions and reflect the lived experience of the world's most exploited and oppressed. What we often discover when we ask the above question, though, are theories that primarily speak to the lived experience of a very small and particular population based at the centers of capitalism. Academics and intellectuals, activists already converted to socialism, the very lived experience of the chic theoretician who is attempting to make what was once understood as privileged, quote, petty bourgeois, unquote, social position into the basis for revolutionary action. Some of these theoreticians and their readers might even pride themselves in being, quote, anti-intellectual, unquote, and treating academia with scorn, though the work they produce is still consumed mainly by a population divorced from those who have nothing left to lose but their chains. The most oppressed and exploited masses are reading neither Badu nor Debord, neither Zizek nor the Invisible Committee. Most of them are not even reading Marx or Lenin, Luxembourg or Mao. The difference between the former and latter categories of theory, however, is that the latter, emerging from concrete revolutionary history, does speak to the lived experience of the masses, whereas the former does not. Theory alienated from practice that contrives to speak in the name of praxis should be treated with suspicion. There is at least one answer to this problem, a way to escape the charge of academic obscurantism. More than a few of these new theories have claimed, from the 1960s to the present, that privileged students and academics have become the new revolutionary agent, a new vanguard, but in a spontaneous sense. Middle-class children rioting in the streets of first-world privilege, students versed in obscurantist jargon smashing Starbucks windows, movementist leaders familiar with the discourse of critical theory, Anything to ignore the fact that these eclectic attempts to re-establish communism are entirely moribund, disconnected from what would make them truly revolutionary, an organized and militant mass movement spearheaded by the gravediggers of capitalism. While it is tempting for those of us who are petty bourgeois intellectuals and students to believe that we will command the revolution, that our class privilege is more of an asset than an inhibition, we need to recognize this empty fantasy for what it is. Our class has never led revolutionary movements and has most often ended up hampering these movements. The theory we occasionally invent to justify our revolutionary status might be an attempt to maintain our privilege in a movement that should be aimed at ending privilege altogether. Here is a terrible notion, 
one that we avoid whenever we embrace those theories that justify our class privilege, we will more than likely be sent down to the countryside. Whatever this figurative, quote, countryside, unquote, happens to be, we too will have to be re-educated. Most of us are terrified by this possibility, disgusted by the necessity of rectification, of being dragged down. We need to recognize, however, that being dragged down to the level of the masses is at the same time a dragging up of the masses to a level that, under the current state of affairs, only some are privileged enough to occupy. To reject this radical moment of equalization is to reify class, to believe that even after a revolution, we are superior to those who were not given our opportunities, to act as if the necessity of revolutionary leveling is akin to oppression. Just as Dante descended into hell in order to climb to heaven, recognizing in this descent that hell was the world in reverse, communism can only be achieved through a painful and chaotic descent of those who have the most to lose, a descent paralleled by the ascent of that class that had nothing to lose but its chains. It is interesting to note that the most prevalent left-wing anti-intellectualism, where critical literacy itself is treated as bourgeois, generally maintains the same elitism. By placing value on some imagined authentic proletarian intelligence and culture, it argues against the necessity for mass education and mass re-education. These anti-intellectual tendencies implicitly assume that the quote, dragging up unquote, is elitist because it is secretly fearful of being dragged down. The proletariat must stay true to this imaginary essence, to its supposedly illiterate consciousness that it understood as beautiful and its ignorance of anything but its spontaneous revolutionary values. The intellectual division of labor remains, cloaked by a clumsy attempt to argue that some illiterate but authentic, quote, working-class culture, unquote, as if the proletariat possesses a homogenous culture, should be preserved. This class culturalism tends to be promoted by those people who already possess intellectual privilege. This politics is an attempt to replace theories of declassing with a quasi-theory of patronization. Instead of tendering new theories, new ways to package communism, we need to confront our historical inability to address the anti-communist ideology that has become prevalent at the centers of capitalism. We collaborated with our silence. We accepted the bourgeois discourse of failure. We refused to organize and share our education. And we hid within the abyss of academic privilege, withdrawing from struggle, allowing communism to become an unfashionable term. We collaborated and still collaborate with every lie promoted about the late Soviet Union or the pre-dang communist China and their supposed crimes against humanity. Falsely compared to fascism due to a discourse of, quote, totalitarianism, unquote, that we have also, out of fear and ignorance, supported. We collaborated when we chose to tail rebellions, refusing to organize them into anything militantly coherent out of the fear that the masses were not ready for revolution. We collaborate when we refuse to recognize the ongoing communist people's wars at the peripheries of global capitalism and refuse to transpose this experience into our own concrete circumstances. We collaborate when we dismiss the demands of necessity, embrace some banal notion of contingency, 
and refused to speak of communism as anything other than an abstract ideal. Language Idealism Academic collaboration reaches its nadir when it sinks into a vague language idealism. Here's where the concept of communism is misunderstood as a platonic form. Here's where the concrete politics of this concept are reduced to a language game and the necessity of revolution is abandoned. When some theorists claim that communism is a notion that can be projected into the distant past as an idea or hypothesis that was always present, then the revolutionary articulation of this name that was first provided by Marx and Engels and thus meant something different from the name that was used, if it was used in prior epochs, is dismissed. Names are conflated with concepts, and a concept that could only emerge at the end of the 19th century, regardless of the etymological cipher used to earmark this concept, is suddenly imagined to have existed prior to the only moment in which it could have emerged. The word communism is thus dissected according to a vague notion, dislocated from what it meant when it was used by Marx and Engels, and can be misunderstood as a transhistorical and a priori. There were always movements that believed in community and holding property in common. Why not pretend that this crude and utopian socialisms of the early Christians were conceptually the same as the scientific socialism expounded by Marx and Engels? The answer should be evident, though its simplicity might appear at first glance to be too vulgar to be accepted. Marx and Engels went to great lengths to demonstrate the difference of their socialism from the utopian socialisms of their time, and thus named it as communist so as to not simply use the word socialist that was also being used by the utopians. As such, they were not at all interested in using this word as it had been used in the past, regardless of the vague conceptual similarities the name evoked. And yet academic collaborators have consistently obsessed over a name, confusing the moment of naming with the moment of conceptualization. Jean-Luc Nancy's essay, Communism the Word, is paradigmatic of this language idealism. Here's an instance where a philosopher uses some vague notion of etymological destiny to confuse names with concepts. Communism as a word is traced back to the 11th and 14th centuries. Some similarities between the modern conception and the nebulous pre-modern conception are established. Quote, people having in common, unquote, and quote, common property, unquote, and ultimately, quote, being in common, unquote. And then the modern, revolutionary notion is dismissed because of an inability to adhere to the name's supposed etymological roots. The end result? Quote, communism, therefore, means the common condition of all the singularities of subjects. That is, of all the exceptions, all the uncommon points whose network makes a world, it does not belong to the political, unquote. A vague and nebulous definition, designed to exclude the revolutionary definition, based on an etymological game that takes the Latin communitas as a point of departure, when meaning is located in etymology, any conceptualization of the word that does not strictly cohere to its etymological origins is treated as erroneous. But Marx and Engels did not employ the name communism because they sought fidelity with an esoteric and etymological meaning. 
it was simply one word chosen amongst many to define a scientific concept that, during their time, was entirely new and in search of a name. They could have used other words if they had so chosen and only used the word communism because it appeared to represent what they meant. And what they meant was a concept, not simply a name, but a concept to which this name is now irrevocably attached. As Engels wrote in 1885, quote, Communism among the French and Germans, Chartism among the English, now no longer appeared as something accidental which could just as well not have occurred. These movements now presented themselves as a movement of the modern oppressed class, the proletariat, as the more or less developed form of its historically necessary struggle against the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, as forms of the class struggle, but distinguished from all earlier class struggles by this one thing, that the present-day oppressed class, the proletariat, cannot achieve its emancipation without at the same time emancipating society as a whole from division into classes and therefore from class struggles. And communism now no longer meant the concoction, by means of the imagination, of an ideal society as perfect as possible, but insight into the nature, the conditions, and the consequent general aims of the struggle waged by the proletariat." Unquote. To speak of some inner communist truth based on a recourse to language games is ultimately disingenuous. It tells us nothing of the conceptual terrain opened by those theorists who were arguing for the necessity of revolutionary science. Although one is always welcome to embrace the meanings of names before the emergence of a coherent concept, this recourse to an eternal idea-slash-hypothesis, or etymological essence, is an abandonment of history. For if etymology determines conceptual destiny, then every science is nonsensical. Modern particle physics, after all, utilizes the word atom as only the anti-scientific ignorant would dare to argue that today's physicists are committing a grave error by failing to adhere to that word's etymological roots. To suggest that the modern scientists remain faithful to the original ancient Hellenic conceptualization of the name atom in order to properly understand their science is laughable at best. At worst, it is reactionary. Words in any language are mediated by the historical moment. Words are not substances. They do not possess intrinsic essences. Concepts stand over and above words, though they often use specific names that communicate some sort of vague meaning to the concept. Such a meaning, though, is demonstrated by a succession of a posteriori words designed to further demarcate a concept. We are indeed limited by our language, but this language is not, in and of itself, a destiny. Etymological analysis is useful to explain a given word's origin, but it does not decide conceptual meaning. As Whittingston once claimed, quote, the meaning of a word is its use in language, unquote. And since Marxists believe that a given language is in the last instance the product of a concrete history, and that language is always mediated by social and historical circumstances, we must go further and claim that the meaning of a word is determined by concrete social processes. After all, this attempt to locate the meaning of the word in its historical point of origin immediately becomes nonsensical, and even Eurocentric, once we take into account communities 
that do not share the same grammatical history. Communists in India, Nepal and Afghanistan, for example, do not have the etymological concept of communitas, a Latin word, from which to derive the modern concept of communism that, for them, is precisely the concept originally theorized by Marx and Engels. Does this mean that they do not properly understand this concept because it belongs to those language communities who share Latin and Greek as their grammatical roots? Obviously not. Even worse, does this mean that they are importing a concept that, due to the Latin origins of its name, is itself a Eurocentric imposition on their own struggles? Clearly, Badu's form of language idealism would deny this etymological tendency since, quite obviously, we can find utopian, quote, communist, unquote, practices in these non-European spaces as well. Contrary to Padu's assumption, though, these early practices, like those elsewhere, were not at all the same practices as the clear-cut theoretical and scientific concept at the end of the 19th century. Just as one cannot project capitalism back into the ancient world, one can also not project communism into the pre-capitalist past. Moving from the heights of academia to the still-alienated theory of popular leftist intellectuals, we find the same language idealism amongst the communism of the Invisible Committee, Theory Communiste, and Notes, and others. The movementist activist circles that are interested again in the name of communism are probably not reading Nancy, but they are gravitating to these chic communization theorists, or at least the most popular expressions of autonomism, and in doing so are being introduced to a concept of communism that is primarily based on its etymological roots. Community, reclaiming the commons, and anything that can divorce the word from how it developed through the most revolutionary moments of the 20th century. Any reclamation of the word of communism, then, cannot be a reclamation that relies only on this amorphous academic exercise, which attempts to locate meaning outside of concrete historical practices, and instead obsesses over names and vague utopian articulations that preceded the most coherent and contemporary variant of the concept. Concepts are not transhistorical, but are produced by humans living in real social and historical circumstances. We should ask what practices this type of language idealism necessitates. Since such theories reject the concrete in favor of nebulous proclamations, they cannot produce a concretely revolutionary project. Their radicalism becomes little more than a theoretical gesture. Chapter 3. New Returns If we are to speak of a new return to revolutionary communism, then we must first think through the problem of an old return. Having so far rejected all of the re-articulations of communism that attempt to distance the name from the conceptual content of its history, it would be easy to assume that this treatise is advocating a return to the way communism was conceptualized and practiced before the, quote, end of history, unquote, was declared. Such an assessment would be simultaneously true and false. On the one hand, it is true that this book is advocating a return to an understanding of communism that has been distanced from the contemporary renewal of its name. Against the rise of postmodernism and chic radical theories, we have examined a return to the recognition of revolutionary science and its truth procedures, developed and established through a dialectic of success and failure, 
that resulted in a rich theoretical terrain. Such a terrain is far more useful for revolutionary practice, for making sense of the world so as to transform it, than contemporary movementist communism. The former should not be rejected due to a Cold War ideology that has socialized us into thinking of it only as a catastrophe. Moreover, there is an ahistorical discourse that has produced a totalized representation of past communist movements and theories. It is quite common to encounter the argument, made particularly by postmodernists and postcolonialists, that the Marxism of the past could not theorize anything other than a crude and Eurocentric notion of social class. On the other hand, this treatise is not arguing for a return to communism that is unaware of the developments of social and theoretical struggle that have taken place since the end of the 1980s. This is not a demand to return to the particular communism that was practiced directly after the October Revolution in 1917, or even to the particular communism that was practiced in the course of the Chinese Revolution under Mao. The most obvious problem of making such a demand is the fact that these revolutions did fail. And though we should not comprehend these failures according to an end-of-history discourse that forbids memory, we should recognize that there were important truths established in these revolutions. Hard won by the struggles of past revolutionaries, we should not fetishize the possibility of perfect repetition. There is a rather dogmatic way of assessing our revolutionary past. Failures are attributed to a lack of fidelity to the perfect theory of making revolution, the results of the heirs of individuals and the organizations they controlled. The solution, by that logic, would be to repeat precisely what allowed these revolutions to happen, but with attention to a proper and, quote, pure, unquote, understanding of theory. Is this not the rallying cry of every marginal Trotskyist sect? Quote, if only Comrade Trotsky had been in charge of the Bolsheviks after Lenin, the revolution was ruined when Stalin bastardized a perfectly good revolutionary theory. Unquote. As noted in the previous chapters, however, there is no pure communist theory, just as there is no pure science. An absolutist conceptualization of science is one in which scientific truths cannot be challenged by successive experiments. This is a science closed to the future and, due to this closure, dogmatic rather than scientific. The concept of necessity explains why this is the case. Encounters with historical necessity demand that we establish ruptural truths and continuity with an unfolding truth procedure. Hence, we must maintain the same standard of assessment when we engage with the terrain of revolutionary theory and practice. We must assert that there is no ideal communism to which we can ever return. There are no precise formulae but there are universal axioms. It is easy to conflate these two categories and end up either fetishizing or dismissing the concepts developed throughout the history of revolutionary struggle. Many of us can easily recall those ortho-communists who frequent activist demonstrations, actions, teach-ins, and panels, missionaries of a communism that belongs to the first two decades of the 20th century. These tragic individuals deliver the same interventions and denunciations at every event where they are permitted to speak. The same formula is given with little attention to the event's particular context. Quote, the solution is for the working class to unite and overthrow capitalism, unquote. Often this formula is meant as a denunciation because these unimaginative persons are under the impression that nobody in attendance has ever thought about unity 
or the overthrow of capitalism. Their assumption is based perhaps on the fact that these events concern Palestinian self-determination, or the role of politics and art, or a current example of state repression. Indeed, perhaps another reason many of us did not wish to identify with communism in the past was because we mistakenly associated it with those fringe dogmatists who were incessantly repeating vague claims about working-class unity based on a working class that was clearly imaginary because, according to all empirical evidence, these, quote, comrades, unquote, did not represent the interests of the masses in whose name they spoke. We should be able to recognize such an old return to communism as a return that is ultimately conservative. Learning nothing of how struggle has developed since 1917 to the present, filtering nearly a century of history through unyielding categories of thought that in fact deform history so as to remain ignorant despite a veneer of savvy, quote, know-how, unquote. This practice of communism lacks vitality. Of course, it is correct to argue that the solution is to unify the proletariat so as to overthrow capitalism, but this is a slogan that deals only with the last instance and, as Althusser never tired of reminding us, the last instance often never arrives. How many historical moments and sites of struggle operate so as to mediate this truism about working-class unity and force us to ask about the meaning of unity, the composition and definition of the working class, the precise strategy of overthrowing capitalism. What does this sloganeering have to do with every particular event that may be talking about something that is also vital and also connected to class struggle? Formulaic maxims, after all, tend to shut down our ability to understand the content of particular sites of struggle. So why is it that these individuals often assume that many of these other instances of social struggle mainly because they do not resemble a doctrinaire definition of praxis, are not themselves about class unity and the overthrow of capitalism. In other words, could these Marxist conservatives actually be opposing concrete class struggle by mystifying the debate according to an idealized definition of the proletariat and bourgeoisie? We could ask more rhetorical questions, but there is no point. Most of us are viscerally repelled by the idea of becoming this kind of cliched Marxist. It is as compelling as becoming a Mormon. Let us go further, leaving behind these tragic communist conservatives, and think through the fact of communist catastrophe. We should have no problem admitting that past communist movements did end in catastrophe. These were catastrophes not for the reasons provided by various anti-communist narratives, Rather, the trauma was due to the very fact of the earth-shaking successes they established. That is, the failures of both the Russian and Chinese revolutions were catastrophic because they fell from such great heights. They had accomplished so much. Unleashing the world historical potential of the masses only to collapse. Whereas capitalism is a catastrophe because of its successes, communism was a catastrophe because its successes were overthrown by its eventual failures. It is not tragic that capitalism is catastrophic because it is not a failure on the part of capitalism. According to its internal logic, it does precisely what it is meant to do, exploitation, commodification, overaccumulation, etc. Indeed, the problem is not that capitalism, quote, doesn't work, unquote, as some anti-globalization slogans would have us think but that it works very well. 
Past experiences of communism, however, have been tragic in the same way that Oedipus, Antigone, and Hamlet are tragic. We celebrate them and mourn the ways in which they have been laid low. And yet communism is not a tragic hero that, upon dying, can never be recovered except in the literary epic. Communism's tragedy is due to the fact of historical necessity. It is always open to the future, reversed upon each new return, that seeks to reignite the greatness that was overwhelmed by historical problems it could not anticipate. A seeking that proceeds by grasping the meaning of this greatness and what led to its tragedy. By accepting what truths were established, what errors produced catastrophe, each moment of communist necessity can possibly establish new truths and encounter successive failures. Hence the Bolsheviks under Lenin overcame the failures of the Second International under Kautsky and Bernstein. Hence the Communist Party of China under Mao overcame the failures of the Third International under Stalin and Khrushchev. We do no favors to the revolutionary masses, past sacrifices, by acting as if this past is either beyond reproach or utterly reprehensible. To speak of a new return is to speak of a way in which to make sense of revolutionary history through the lived experience of the present. Moreover, all of the questions raised by those radical theories that have rejected this revolutionary past need to be answered by this new return rather than dismissed. To speak of a new return is to recognize that the past always returns through the present. We need to recognize this return rather than allowing it to speak through our unconscious actions. History has its revenge, and it is not worth quoting that annoying Santayana platitude, of which even conservatives make much ado to recognize this point. Marx already recognized the same point in the course of thinking through social movements, where history might indeed repeat as tragedy and farce. To be unaware of the weight of dead generations is to repeat all the mistakes of the past. Movementism has been doing this for decades. Communism cannot afford to make the same error. So if we are to think through the possibility of a new return, we must also think through the way in which such a new return emerged. At the centers of capitalism, in the recent past and following this investigation, remember the ways in which there have also been new returns to all of the erroneous practices that could prevent us from pursuing a similar return now, or even in the future when the same mistakes are repeated. Anti-revisionism and the new left, all of the reformist traps, the false promises of speculative theory, and finally the return to groundless utopian communisms, wherein the necessity of a new anti-revisionism can be discovered. Anti-revisionism In the past generations of revolutionary struggle at the centers of capitalism, there arose a new left that also attempted to reconfigure communist ideology. The Soviet revolution was approaching the moment of revisionism and, due to this approach, some argued for the need to return to the foundation of Marxism for a reassessment of revolutionary philosophy. Both the Frankfurt School and the Situationists, to name two significant examples of early New Left theorists, argued for this return and, in the course of making this argument, defended the need for an academic reassessment of revolutionary science. These academic reproachments, because they began as theories without practice, were largely incapable of recognizing those movements that were also calling the current state of revolutionary praxis into question. 
but were doing so in a manner that ignored the cautious academic insights of the New Left. For the New Left did not really grasp the significance of the Chinese Revolution, just as it began without a concrete understanding of the innumerable anti-colonial revolutions influenced by that world historical event in China. While this initially academic recruitment argued for a theoretically compelling, but practically banal, reboot of Marxian philosophy, and quote, other left, unquote, the left of the peripheries, the revolutions beyond the scope of academic civility, demanded a return to the revolutionary Marxism that was considered uncouth, but, in this return, also a theoretical development beyond the limits reached by the Soviets. Where the new left lapsed into critiques of totalitarianism in an effort to produce a Marxist philosophy that could escape the traps of actually existing socialism, this other left theorized a continuity with the banned science that, in the moment of continuity, would necessitate a further point of rupture. The former group's initial dismissal of the approach taken by the latter was not simply academic. Horkheimer became a conservative reactionary. Adorno refused to take a principled stance on the Vietnam War and insultingly compared the anti-imperialist student movement that would give birth to the Red Army Fraction and other urban guerrilla movements to the Hitler Youth. And yet the New Left also produced a variety of committed militants and tendencies, paradigmatically exemplified by the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, and the Weather Underground Organization, WUO. These militant currents attempted to implement the concepts of New Left academic theorists, despite the fact that some of these initial theorists might have been horrified by such militancy. Here we discover tentative steps towards a radical anti-imperialism, influenced also by Ho Chi Minh and Che Guevara, that was significant in that it necessitated further radicalization. In this sense, the New Left produced and intersected with a variety of important political tendencies. The early feminist movement, small urban guerrilla groupings, and even a unity with black nationalism. It was in this context that the so-called, quote, new communist movement, unquote, the anti-revisionism of yesteryear, emerged throughout the centers of capitalism. Against the limitations of the new left, these anti-revisionists raised the demand for a new return to the dialectic of actually existing revolution. Against a retreat into student politics or a flirtation with a Guevara's militancy, they defended the very concepts that some sections of the new left had claimed were out of date, producing a period of struggle that, in some ways, went beyond the theoretical and practical output of the new left. Although many of these anti-revisionist militants were once trained in the discourse of the new left, and indeed learned from some of its useful insights, they attempted to discard the limitations of this discourse in the face of revolutionary necessity. Thus, when judged according to the standard of revolution, the new communist movement should be considered significant, though also limited by historical necessity. If the contributions of the new communist movement are generally forgotten by those who continue to adore the theoretical precedence for the new left, it is because the latter were better preserved in academic discourse. Academia has a long institutional memory. Universities control libraries and sites of publication. The ability to freeze the thought of its favorite intellectuals in time and reproduce, when it is necessary, the popular academic books of a past decade. The militants of the new communist movement, however, 
did not control printing presses or journals. Most of their publications were pamphlets, programs, self-published books. When the anti-revisionism of that time collapsed, the contributions of this vanishing movement, published by organizations that had ceased to exist, suddenly became scarce. Academia does not have to deal with this impediment since it is also a bourgeois institution. It can republish the work of its popular leftists, sell publication rights to other established presses, and propagate the thought of an intellectual movement that at one time had been outpaced. The ideas of the new left will continue to resonate in academia, but the terrain in which the theory of the new communist movement resonated, the terrain of concrete class struggle, is a space that has been largely cleansed, for various reasons, of the revolutionary theory of the past generation. In this context, academia even preserves the memory of thinkers who were marginal to the new left, let alone unimportant and completely disconnected from the popular social struggles of the time. For example, we can find contemporary academic leftists citing Hal Draper, a rather unremarkable thinker whose, quote, socialism from below, unquote, is a better slogan than it is a theory. But dismissing all of the possibly exciting theoretical developments of the new communist movement, since this movement operated largely outside the boundaries of academia. So if history repeats itself, then we can understand the current academic fad according to the vicissitudes of the past. Those who speak of communist hypotheses and horizons are the quote, new left, unquote, of today. Another generation of academics alienated from class struggle who are attempting to refocus our intention on a supposedly new and fresh approach to communism. At the same time, however, some of the activists who have been radicalized by the new left of today are already, like their historical antecedents, overstepping the initial limitations of this popular left discourse and slowly gravitating toward a contemporary version of anti-revisionism. We should be clear, though, about the limits of this previous cycle of anti-revisionism. The new communist movement was in part responsible for its own demise. In its attempt to militantly uphold anti-revisionism, many of this movement's organizations tended to offer formulaic, theoretical solutions culled from past revolutionary texts or official statements from the Communist Party of China. In its desire to actively pursue communism's necessity, it would eventually become distracted by sectarian squabbles. There is no reason to repeat its mistakes. Lingering organizations and parties from this period that have not disintegrated are proof of that period's limitations, insular, declining, and often quite cultish. Rather, a new phase of anti-revisionism at the centers of capitalism is required, one that is already in the process of emergence. Such a phase must begin by aligning itself with those revolutionary movements that are producing people's wars and, in these productive moments, also producing the germ of revolutionary theory. Now, in the very moment that this generation's new left is publishing treatises on the reclamation of communism, and thus beginning to overstep its own horizon, we can glimpse the dawn of anti-revisionism that will again eclipse those radical academics who, in imagining that they are embarking upon the uncharted seas of new theory, are unconsciously repeating all of the errors of their predecessors. The Electoral Trap 
thankfully many of today's new communisms are anti-revisionist enough to reject the electoral system. Some of them are notable for recognizing the uselessness of even participating in the specter of contemporary, state-sanctioned elections. Badu has disparaged bourgeois elections, claiming that they should be rejected entirely. The Invisible Committee claims, quote, that it's only against voting itself that people continue to vote, unquote. According to some of these contemporary reclamations, we are at least on an anti-revisionist trajectory. We should expect nothing less. We should even wonder why there are still communist parties and Marxist organizations that run in elections, attempt to enter bourgeois parties, and base their entire strategy on an a priori assumption that there can be a peaceful coexistence with capitalism. Anarchists have always been more militant in their rejection of state conventions, though not always for the right reasons, and so the rejection of the electoral trap on the part of those reclamations of communism that approach anarchism might not be surprising. Rather, it is when we find anarchists talking about electoral practice as a valid tactic that we are surprised. There are also those amongst today's new left, militants of a new reclamation of communism, that find such a rejection irresponsible. To be fair, this charge of irresponsibility is not premised on the doctrine of, quote, peaceful coexistence, unquote. All of those busy reclaiming communism for a new generation at least recognize that communism cannot be voted into reality, but simply on the assumption that we should not abandon any terrain of social struggle. If one party is capable of defending social welfare better than another, it is argued, then it is our responsibility to push them into power while continuing to struggle beyond the limits of the framework of social democracy. Old arguments are wrenched from particular social and historical contexts in order to justify the practice of pragmatic electoral participation. Despite all efforts to kick the supposedly antiquated terminology of Marxism-Leninism out the door, it returns through the window, but stripped of its revolutionary vitality. Sometimes the old slur of, quote, ultra-leftism, unquote, is used, but with anxiety and embarrassment. Those who reject everything Lenin wrote about opportunism and organization are wont to fall back on this argument regarding electoral participation in Britain in the early decades of the 20th century and the, quote, infantile, unquote, nature of refusal. Hence, Lenin becomes authoritative only in reference to electoral pragmatism. But if he has been dismissed as an authority in every other context, why should we bother to conjure his ghost in this particular area? Perhaps we are haunted by everything we have abandoned and thus cling to those aspects of the past that justify our behavior in the here and now. To treat elections as a viable space of struggle now, decades following the ascendancy of a discourse that proclaimed the capitalist end of history is a grand act of cynicism. This cynicism is one that is already aware that it is not viable to assume that communism can be voted into existence. We know that elections do not matter, and that capitalism continues its murderous onslaught regardless of what party is in power. To waste time and energy, then, in a struggle that will not move us any closer to our distant horizon is to participate in a convention we recognize as fraudulent. It is a bit like an unemployed biologist who pays the bills and maintains some sort of influence over their students by teaching six-day creationism at a private religious school. By rejecting the theories of organization and strategy born of necessity, 
we are often only capable of struggling in those reformist spaces that the current social order considers legitimate. We know nothing else, and imagination of practice has atrophied. Movementism as a whole promotes such a strategy. In lieu of the coming insurrection, lurking beyond that unapproachable horizon, and instead of building a militantly structured organizational force, we might as well busy ourselves with damage control within the framework of the current state of affairs. At the very least, we can achieve more results, no matter how paltry, in the space of bourgeois democracy than we can in the odd demonstration or radical parade. Seattle and Quebec City produce nothing but spectacle. Years after the Arab Spring and Occupy, the might of capitalism and imperialism are as strong as ever. Perhaps we believe that if we are able to vote into power someone who is even marginally sympathetic to our politics, regardless of whether or not they actually do anything, then we can be successful at something, even if it is merely the success of getting a politician elected. Here, it is worth wondering whether this cynical and pragmatic understanding of parletinarianism is better than the old left's revisionist illusions about participating in the bourgeois electoral system. While it is tempting to argue that the cynical approach is refreshingly honest, it is likely that the other approach is more honest and that it is not participating in deceit. Indeed, those old communist parties that still run candidates in various elections do not recognize the contradiction of their practice. They have various rhetorical strategies and dogmas that allow them to believe that they are engaged in revolutionary practice and represent the will of the proletariat. One only needs to argue for an hour with an average member of the Communist Party USA, or the Communist Party of Canada, or the Communist Party of India Marxist, or any other similar organization to realize that this is the case. They will accuse you of being a counter-revolutionary and in league with the bourgeoisie, mainly because you challenge their political direction. They truly believe that they can vote communism into existence, or at the very least organized primarily within bourgeois democracy. Those who believe this an illusion, however, and sublimate their energy in electoral pragmatism, cannot defend their practice with such a fantastical doctrine. But what other options, our pragmatists might argue, do we have while waiting for the communist horizon and the next convergence of movement forces? The answers come quickly, perhaps too quickly, since they have been the answers for decades. Rebuild a new left that is better than the old left. Embed oneself within the struggles of trade unions. The Refoundationalist Trap Rather than establishing a movement theoretically unified in revolutionary necessity, that is, establishing the kernel of a revolutionary party of a new type, a common tendency is to instead establish projects, processes, networks, and assemblies that attempt to unify vague, and fractured elements of the left that tend to resist once they are thrown together in overarching clarity or unity. Assuming, and often correctly, that the left is dead, this refoundationalism asserts that the left's quote, death, unquote, is precisely the death that was declared by capitalism and that, in order to live again, the left must be rebuilt from the ground up. The strategy is to gather all the elements of moribund left grouplets into one grouping and hope that something greater than the sum of its parts will emerge from this process of gathering. Here is yet another horizon projected into the distant future, a hypothesis that will magically be solved 
by mixing together people in groups who appear to share the same ideology. Again, there's nothing new to this approach, regardless of what some of its defenders might claim, and this refoundationalism often encourages movementist practice. When a variety of organizations with competing ideologies and strategies are gathered together under one banner, the only theoretical unity that can be achieved is the most vague anti-capitalism. Since revolutionary strategy is derived from revolutionary unity, the vagueness of theory produces a vagueness in practice. Tailism, neo-reformism, nebulous movementism. Refoundationalism produces a variety of tactics. University talk shops where representatives of different movements are invited to debate in closed spaces where the left gathers to watch the left talk about the left. Websites that advertise themselves as a revolutionary process. City assemblies filled with organizations that dislike each other. The aim is to produce the foundation of a new anti-capitalist movement that will somehow cohere from innumerable incoherent elements. The problem with this approach is not the belief that, due to past failures, a new revolutionary movement needs to be built and developed, but the assumption that the historical basis of such a movement must be entirely refounded. For this assumption carries with it the groundless hope that those involved in refoundationalist projects will not bring all of the heirs with them, will not be invested in the ideologies of their own failed organizations, and that the refoundationalist project as a whole will not yet be another repetition of the past and similar attempts. We know what happened to the last attempted new left and its refoundationalist projects. It was eclipsed and swept aside by a radical anti-revisionism. Historical necessity teaches us that the kernel of a militant organization, unified according to revolutionary theory, is the only thing capable of refounding a revolutionary movement. And this movement will grow by proving itself to the masses and thus by organizing the masses according to their emancipatory demands, not by tailing them, not by manufacturing a disunified organization out of already existing component parts, some of which do not fit together. The great revolutions of history teach us that we cannot produce an organization capable of fighting capitalism if we are building an organization that has little hope of producing a clear political line out of its confusion. Indeed, History should have taught us that to control the political line is to determine the movement. Inversely, to have an indeterminate movement is to lose control of the political line. And when a movement is based on an indeterminate politics, however broadly anti-capitalist, those organizations who possess the most coherent political line will be those who end up redirecting and determining the organization, whatever its initial intent. Most often this means that some version of quote, common sense, unquote, ideology will triumph in these spaces. In the absence of ideological coherence, we often fall back on the way we have been socialized to understand the world, and thus reformism will trump revolution. While it is true that political lines are never static, the fact of line struggle means that they are essentially dynamic, they must aim for more coherence and direction than a vague anti-capitalism that lacks clarity in theory and practice. Theoretical unity is itself a process. Revolutionary parties are themselves processes, and it is thus strange to pretend, as some do, that we must have a refoundationalist process in order to produce a party. 
as if the party is the end result of a process rather than being the process in itself, begin with a political line and demonstrate its efficacy in concrete class struggle. We prove nothing by forming new organizations with the already organized left rather than organizing the currently unorganized. Those committed to the refoundationalist strategy, however, believe that they are involved in revitalizing the left, and it is unlikely that this belief, which is little more than dogma, will disappear anytime soon. Even the most radical refoundationalist projects who dare to speak the names of Lenin and Mao discover the limitations of the boundaries they have drawn. They too will tail the masses, will fail to pursue necessity, will always be staring at some distant horizon that will never arrive because they are not interested in making it arrive. A new anti-revisionism is required. Not a new refoundationalism, not another new left, but a new return to the communist necessity. The Trade Union Trap Another appropriate organizational practice upon which to embark while awaiting the communist horizon, and one that can be simultaneous with and even amount to reformism and refoundationalism, is union organizing. Being an old practice, long predating movementism and today's reclaimed communism, there is a compelling tradition to unionism, an assumption that it can be revolutionary based on its history and already existent organization. We do not have to think about what it means to pursue the larger questions of necessity when we submerge ourselves in the day-to-day -day economic struggles of unionized workers, or even when we spend our energy fighting to establish a union. All we need to think about is the union, and the particular goals of the union, and not what lurks beyond the limits of this logic. Movementism finds its home today in trade unionism because unions are social movements that, along with other social movements, might participate in the coming insurrection, the communist horizon. The limits of trade union consciousness described famously by Lenin and one of the foundational concepts behind any necessity of a revolutionary party can be dismissed in a cavalier manner, justified by the abstract assumption that unions represent the most organized elements of the exploited masses. Past theories regarding unions as the basis of revolutionary struggle can be rebranded in the name of a movementist communism. This is why Draperism has been revived. There is no need to build a communist organization since the working classes are already organized in unions, Draper argued, and this prior organization may indeed constitute a, quote, socialism from below, unquote. Submerge oneself within unions, the most organized working class institutions, and build a communist project through unionism. One does not have to care very much about Draper. After all, he was so disconnected from social struggles in his own time that his thoughts on revolutionary practice should be treated as laughable to accept something akin to the practice he advocated. Social unionism as part of an unquestioned insurrectionary strategy, albeit usually a movementist one, is one of the valid communist practices at the centers of capitalism. The liquidation of communist practice amongst union activists, however, has tended to produce a phenomenon that was once called economism, where the necessity of communism is replaced by an activism determined by the need to promote the union's ability to secure its members' economic stability. Revolutionary necessity thus becomes hampered by immediate economic necessity. The late action socialist, a Quebecois revolutionary project that peaked in the 1990s, 
has assessed its own experience with economism in the following manner. Quote, the whole organization was deeply affected by what we called, quote, economism, unquote. Spontaneous intervention within immediate economic struggles, abandoning agitation, propaganda, and communist organizing. Economism is a form of right-wing opportunism. For its proponents, the movement represents everything, while the final goal, communism, no longer means anything. In pursuing economism, we neglect to develop the revolutionary camp and begin to abandon our most basic principles in order to achieve more immediate gains. Several comrades then held leadership positions in student unions, community groups, or workers' unions. The important goal for us at the time was to conquer the organizational leadership of mass movements. We sometimes got there, in some cases easily, because of our organizational talents. But this rarely meant ideological or political leadership. What tends to happen in those times is either we put aside and quote, hide unquote, our real points of view, or even defend viewpoints we don't believe in, or we begin to develop bureaucratic practices to impose our minority viewpoints and keep the positions we attain in one movement or another, unquote. Action Socialiste's experience is paradigmatic of trade union activism on the part of the communists. This economism is experienced, in greater or lesser degrees, by every communist who has sought to make union activism the basis of their revolutionary practice. If the situation was otherwise, after all, we would have long ago achieved the promise of draperism. Multiple red unions would have produced our revolutionary party. Instead, those of us who have attempted to find our communist way within union spaces should be able to recognize some of the claims made in the above quotation. Bogged down by collective agreements so that our activism becomes the management of union survival. Fighting for a union leadership that is only marginally left in essence. Finding ourselves on an executive or union working group that is politically divided. Stranded in a union with people whose politics we despised, who were our, quote, comrades, unquote, simply because they shared the same workspace. Every strike, no matter how radical, should remind us of the economist's limits. Right when our immediate economic demands are met, regardless of those demands that challenge the economic system as a whole, we shut down the lines and go back to work. Sometimes we end the strike even earlier, acceding to the strength of the employer in these times of austerity and because, in any case, we must keep the union alive. Immediate economic demands, of course, are not insignificant. We have to put food on the table and pay the bills. We want job security and benefits. Solidarity amongst workers is laudable, and it would be a mistake to oppose unions and union drives because they are not as revolutionary as a communist party. The option, however, should never be the false dilemma of liquidating communist practice within the unions or opposing unionization on principle. To reject economism, to recognize that trade unions, particularly at the centers of capitalism, may not be our primary spaces of organization should not produce a knee-jerk anti-unionism. No different in practice than the conservative hatred of unions, rather, it should cause us to recognize the necessity of focusing our organizational energies elsewhere. Without this recognition, we end up conflating a practice limited by reformism with revolutionary agitation. Hence, the mistake is to veil these immediate demands, which amount to a level of survival that is possible because of an organized workplace, with the trappings of communism. 
revolutionary consciousness demands more than a consciousness determined by immediate demands, which is why today it is more likely to be found amongst the non-unionized workers who have not, through union economism, been integrated with the system. We cannot find, as a general rule, the worker with, quote, nothing to lose, unquote, in first world trade unions. These unionized workers have much to lose, in the sense of immediate economic privileges, if they were to ever succeed in painting their union red, which is why, of course, it does not happen. Not now, not at the centers of capitalism. The Imaginative Lack of Imagination In the previous chapter, we confronted those theories that attempted reclamations of the name communism, that were little more than collaborations with the current state of affairs, due to their unwillingness to grapple with the concrete situation, to take recourse in fantasy, to divorce themselves from struggle, and pretend that imagination itself is struggle. In actuality, this is an ironic demonstration of a limited imagination. Regardless of one's creative feats and theoretical fantasy, the relegation of the question of organization and strategy to the possibility of spontaneity is rather uncreative. To assume that communism will just happen at distant point X, based on our grandiose assertions and the combination of social movements, is rather bland. So what then do these reclamations tell us about reviving an anti-revisionist and revolutionary tradition if we are not to endorse the traps of bourgeois elections, refoundationalism, or economism? In their inability to creatively grapple with necessity, we might be able to learn something significant, namely, how not to think. Tekin's theory of Bloom is a paradigm example of this imaginative lack of imagination. After a whirlwind of theoretical eclecticism, from Debord to Baudillard to Agemben and all through Joyce, they assert the name of the collective under which they would write their next movementist bestseller, quote, the Invisible Committee, an openly secret society, a public conspiracy, an instance of anonymous subjectivation, whose name is everywhere and headquarters nowhere, the experimental revolutionary polarity of the imaginary party, the invisible committee, not a revolutionary organization, but a higher level of reality, a metaphysical territory of secession with all the magnitude of a whole world of its own, the playing area where positive creation alone can accomplish the great emigration of the economy from the world, unquote. Very imaginative language to simply conclude that there is no point in building a militant and organized movement in the real world. After all, how can one organize a mystical, blanket society that operates primarily upon a metaphysical terrain? The solution is to hope such a chimera can emerge spontaneously through our creative play, which of course means that our only responsibility is to write and read theory or at most embark on great acts of literary and artistic production. And yet someone, or some people, decided that it was worth speaking in the name of this mystical organization, despite its impossibility of actually existing, because five years later we were given the coming insurrection by the Invisible Committee. Although there is something more concrete in the Invisible Committee's unflinching reclamation of the name communism, it is reclaimed only insofar as to appropriate it from an ideological tradition it despises. Indeed, it refers to those Marxist-Leninists who developed the term historically as its enemies.
More importantly, though, is the fact that the Invisible Committee relies on a hazy understanding of the theory of insurrection, a strategy that has only met with failure after the October Revolution, but cleansed of its Leninism. Spontaneous insurrections without the wretched business of a civil war, and the assumption that the military and police forces will be won over by the fraternization of insurrectionists because, quote, the militarization of civil war is the defeat of insurrection, unquote. Necessity is denied merely on the assumption that the state's armed bodies of women and men will not violently put down untrained insurrectionists, that they will be politically won over by the insurrection itself. But the state has and will put down insurrections, and every insurrection since 1917 has indeed been violently suppressed. Why pretend otherwise? Because we do not want to think through the hard questions demanded by necessity. The uprising by Franco Berardi veritably shudders in its attempt to hide from the fact of revolutionary necessity. Here the revolution is not even something that happens in a concrete sense that has to do with unavoidable social truths. Ignored are the facts that there are armies trained to control populations, weapons monopolized by the ruling class, and a coercive state apparatus that will not deign to avoid a bloodbath when it is challenged. Rather, Berardi's revolution is something that happens in the imagination, a linguistic phenomena, the business of poetry. Since the best satire is delivered with a straight face, it is tempting to speculate on whether or not Berardi is being serious or lampooning other chic social theories. After all, in the face of entire populations, who are even now being bombed and occupied, these everyday massacres that are part of the normative operation of the flows of, quote, finance, unquote, Berardi examines, to seriously suggest a linguistic and poetic revolution that is neither violent nor nonviolent is tantamount to spitting in the face of the wretched of the earth and telling them that they should resist by writing poetry. To the above three examples, we can add the theories of, quote, communization, unquote, promoted by theory communiste and endnotes. Influenced by, but critical of, the left-slash-libertarian communism of Gilles Davey and socialism or barbarism, they peddle a theory that is yet another example of the same movement as practice with a communist mask. The problem for theory communiste is the, quote, programmatism, unquote, of the past cycles of revolution, cycles they think are finished. While we should agree that there are different cycles of revolution, historical moments of continuity rupture, it is notable that these communization theorists are incapable of thinking through the cycles of struggles unleashed by the Chinese revolution. Aside from dismissing it as, quote, programmatic, unquote, let alone the contemporary cycles of struggles demonstrated by a storm of people's wars that began in 1988, mentioned at the outset of this treatise. One might as well be a revisionist and an open collaborator with capitalism and imperialism to abide by the logic of these theoretical reclamations of the name of communism. Even if those who limit their reclamation to a vague talk of hypotheses and horizons refuse to go this far down the road of a supposedly new communist imaginary, this is the terrain into which their trajectory falls. In the past, these speculations were utopian, but to be utopian now, after so many earth-shaking revolutions, wherein the masses won almost as much as they lost, is to plummet into the revisionist abyss. To wait in hope of spontaneity while, 
in the meantime, practicing a peaceful coexistence with this brutal reality. The solution, however, is indeed imagination and creativity, but not a groundless imagination and creativity that cannot think through concrete problems that reifies the current state of affairs. No, what we need is the kind of imagination and creativity that we find in other sciences. Imagining a future and creatively building this future based upon the truths won through past struggles. The history of successful or nearly successful revolutions and people's wars are instances in which revolutionary unity, however temporarily, was actually built. This is a past which radiates multiple necessities, the most important of which is communism. We can predict, however, the way in which some of these theorists will respond to an analogy of scientific truth. They will remind us of the dangers of techno-scientific rationality and the totalizing nightmare of scientific progress. Since we addressed this complaint earlier, there is no reason to defend scientific necessity here. Instead, let us engage with these theories' lack of imagination according to the history of imagination and creativity itself, the history of literature, music, and the arts that is treated as significant, for example, by the Tekin group. In the universe of creativity, the unreflective repetition of previous artistic production is usually understood as unremarkable. If we were to encounter an artist unaware of the history of their craft, posturing as original while reproducing Duchamp's work in the early 20th century, we would treat them as arrogant and barely worthy of consideration. We know there is a history to literature and art that might teach us something. And this is the basis of any thoughtful judgment made in the terrain of imagination. Even Tekin believes that there is a merit to this kind of judgment, if only implicitly, there is a reason it chooses to reference James Joyce rather than Dan Brown, Paul Valery rather than Robert Frost, that is not reducible to literary elitism. What do these theories offer, then, even according to the general standards of creative quality? The same movement to spontaneity, the same vague insurrection, the same distant horizon. Eclecticism is barely imaginative. It is about as creative as an elementary school collage. And in this eclectic mobilization of theory that is only imaginative in appearance, there is a return to all of the utopian mistakes of the past. New Returns To speak of a communist necessity is to also speak, in every particular situation in which a universalized communist theory might be articulated, of concrete praxis. And since talk of hypotheses, possibilities, horizons, produces a return to an ineffective movementism, how can we recognize a new return to an organized and totalized revolutionary practice when such a return is supposedly forbidden by the failures of actually existing socialism? This is the question, unfortunately, that is posed at the centers of capitalism where the word communism, after decades of suppression, is finally re-emerging. Against this fad of reclaiming a name to which is attached a dubious concept, we assert that a single revolutionary program that emerges from a concrete analysis of a concrete situation on behalf of a dynamic movement is worth more than a thousand academic Marxist books or a thousand eclectic neo-communist theories. If communism is a necessity, then we cannot accept abstract reclamations that cannot grasp the need to make it a reality.
We need to demand the concrete. We need to focus on literature produced by movements that are active in class struggle and due to this activity have also produced a theory that is itself generated by the necessities of struggle. Nor can we ignore the fact that revolutionary communism was already reclaimed right at the moment of the collapse of actually existing socialism in the People's War in Peru, in the birth of the revolutionary internationalist movement, in the launching of the People's War in Nepal, in the current People's War in India. These movements have spoken the name of communism, despite failure and setbacks, without ameliorating themselves in some incohate movementism. Why they have been mostly ignored by the current intellectual fad of reclaiming the once-banned name is worth considering. Why self-proclaimed communists become annoyed when some of us speak of these actual revolutionary movements, complaining that they have heard enough about people's wars, and yet become excited with every doomed uprising or moribund populism, should make us wonder. In many ways, this excitement over banal movementist strategies represents a return to the utopian communisms that Marx and Engels once expended so much energy combating in order to place the practice of making revolution upon scientific foundations. Indeed, Engels' focus on necessity represents his attempt to break from utopian idealism so that the purest of revolution would be more than an idle dream, a post-political hallucination. The heirs of history are not so easily silenced, and there will always be new returns to utopian anti-capitalism for as long as capitalism remains hegemonic. Unlike the so-called hard sciences, where previous paradigms are only endorsed by a minority of people who are generally understood as backwards, the science of revolution is a messy affair where innumerable dead ends are preserved as vestigial philosophies that masquerade as science. So in the face of the nightmare of capitalism, it is often tempting to resist with idle dreams of a utopian horizon and pretend that these dreams, as philosophically attractive as they sometimes might seem, are akin to revolutionary science. Often it is even more tempting to discard the terminology of science altogether, adopting philosophical skepticism, for it is quite dangerous for those who wish to avoid the problems of necessity to accept that revolution in history can be treated scientifically. Indeed, in these days where totality is seen as suspect, and contingency has become a standard of theoretical labor, the speaking of science is often treated as an act of bad faith. Better to speak only of philosophy, unmoored from the totalizing confines of science, and thus plunge back into the philosophical socialism of the 19th century, utopianism. The problem with this new return to utopianism is that those most taken with such an approach to communism often believe that they are indeed engaged in something new. The amnesia intrinsic to this idealism prevents them from realizing that it is also a return. They are quite willing to accept that they are returning to the name of communism, but unwilling to accept that their manner of speaking this name, the fetishistic search for a new revolutionary strategy, is a return to a species of communism that, as Marx and Engels recognized, is incapable of manifesting revolution because it is incapable of recognizing its own necessity. Thus, there can be no absolute, quote, dustbin of history, unquote, not until communism emerges, because we will always return, often in new ways, to the flawed ideas of yesteryear, 
Just as our enemy also remobilizes and rearticulates the reactionary ideologies of the past, as Marx noted, just when we assume we are engaged in revolutionizing ourselves, quote, in creating something that has never yet existed, precisely in such periods of revolutionary crisis, we anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past, unquote. The trick, however, is to discover what historical spirits we are conjuring, what masks we are donning, and that we are even donning them in the first place. Otherwise, we run the risk of farcical historical repetition. These repetitions have already happened and are happening again. Whereas the old communist utopianism spoke of, quote, kingdoms of reason, unquote, and imagined emancipatory social systems that, divorced from material and social relations, quote, the more they were completely worked out, the more they could not avoid drifting off into pure fantasies, unquote. This new utopianism has drifted further into fantasy by hypothesizing a distant horizon that we could possibly and nebulously reach on one apocalyptic day. Now we have a utopianism that remains utopian about the practical means of achieving its fantasy while, at the same time, occasionally declaring fidelity to Marx or even Lenin. This utopianism is a new return because its manifestation can be observed in all the spontaneous currents of the early 20th century that attempted to distinguish themselves from the theory of a militant and vanguard revolutionary party by arguing for the self-organization of the working class. Although the utopian communists of today might claim that they know where the Leninist model of organization leads, to Stalin, to the gulags, to totalitarianism, they are often unreflective of the movementist model that has never succeeded in placing us on the road to revolutionary upheaval. The former model, regardless of its eventual failure, brought us closer to the supposed horizon of communism. The latter produced the rationale for tailing disarticulated mass movements in the name of a horizon these movements were not even trying to reach. So if we must have a new return to the past revolutionary processes, then we should be aware of what process was the larger failure, the utopian theories of self-organization that led nowhere, or the concrete theories of organized revolutionary necessity that produced world historical revolutions that, with all their errors, still shook the foundations of bourgeois reality. In thinking through this question, we should be led to recognize that today's utopianism amounts to making social peace with capitalism. Unfortunately, those who are committed to this resurgent utopianism would argue that a new return to the communism that developed through the path of necessity is also, and can only be, tragic and farcical. Despite the return to the name of communism, this new utopianism, due to its emergence in the heart of left-wing academia and petty bourgeois student movements, has absorbed the postmodern fear of those who speak of a communist necessity. The fear of that which is totalizing and thus totalitarian. The failure to develop any concrete strategy of overthrowing capitalism instead of being treated as a serious deficiency, is apprehended as a strength. The movement can be all things for all people, everything for everyone, everywhere and nowhere. Quote, for when we are truly everywhere, we will be nowhere, for we will be everyone, unquote. But where did this utopianism lead? Where can it lead? 
nowhere obviously, which was not the same as everywhere. These nebulous proposals sound nice, might even be more enjoyable to read than a party program produced by a coherent revolutionary movement, but they are devoid of the strategy necessary for making a sustainable existence beyond the limits of capitalism a reality. What is interesting about this new return to utopian communism, however, is that it has somehow succeeded in veiling itself in a praxis, or due to movement to spontaneism, lack of praxis, that, by the 1990s, was considered the province of an anarchism and anti-capitalism that saw communism as a great mistake. In the days leading up to Seattle, at the heart of global imperialism, those who spoke of refusing to take power, of some new movement that could spontaneously end capitalism upon reaching a critical mass, and of the political fantasy described, but of course not prescribed and we are everywhere, would have eschewed the word, quote, communism, unquote, since it stank of failure and totalitarianism, and everything they were taught to despise in bourgeois high school textbooks. Now the word communism is being spoken into these spaces, and through a forbidding name, those who speak it are attempting to reconfigure the concept. Even the invisible committee that imagines its own fantastical horizon of a coming insurrection without a Leninist party has remobilized the word communism when, only decades earlier, the same people probably would have been anxious whenever it was spoken. In the face of this utopianism, then, it is important to argue instead for a new return to the revolutionary tradition that treated communism as a necessity. Not simply a dogmatic reassertion of something Lenin said in 1917, or something Marx said in 1848, but a return to the living science of this communism that originates with Marx and Engels, loops through Lenin, twists through Mao, and is still open to the future. All returns are always new, as Lenin learned when he creatively applied Marxism to his social context as Mao learned when he creatively applied Marxism-Leninism to his social context, as those of us who understand that communism must be understood as a necessity are trying to learn when we return to these past developments of necessity with a perspective that is always new because society changes, but also a return because society is burdened by the weight of dead generations. Such a return must be concrete, must be able to speak the history of universal revolutionary necessity into each and every particular context in which we live and struggle. It is meaningless to only return to a name, to an uncritically inherited method of struggle that derives from a focus on vague hypotheses and horizons, unless we are willing to pursue everything this name came to mean over the course of revolutionary struggle since Marx. For when we return anew, over and over, to the necessity of making communism, we will be confronted with great difficulties and the always imminent potential of failure. So much still needs to be accomplished. Let us advance the struggle for making communism a concrete reality, and let us cease this prattle about some ideal communism that exists outside of time and space, and instead, with all of the messiness this would imply, return to the recognition that its necessity requires a new return to the revolutionary communist theories and experiences won from history. Coda. Reality being what it is, the questions raised by this treatise are unlikely to be solved soon. 
If there is new return to the problematic of necessity, and a new anti-revisionist epoch of struggle replaces today's tired movementism, there is still the chance that only new failures will be encountered in the course of establishing new successes. We might succeed in temporarily breaching the distant communist horizon, only to be catastrophically wrenched back into the nightmare of the present. The importance of necessity might again be forgotten. Communism relegated once more to the realm of failure, only to be yet again reclaimed by another new left that is even more wary of thinking of communism. We should wonder how many repetitions are even possible. The window in which we can make revolution is closing as the world approaches the Armageddon promised by the logic of capital. The fact of historical necessity is more visceral today than it has ever been. We cannot wait for a spontaneous arrival of the communist horizon when capitalism is nearing its own horizon, environmental collapse, a new ice age, the devastation of human existence as we know it, promised by its necessary and day-to-day -day operations. We cannot afford to tinker with its framework in the hope that the questions of revolution will be solved at some unknown point in the future. We cannot afford to waste our time in spaces and practices premised on the continuation of a system of exploitation, commodification, and eternal war. Here, at the centers of capitalism, it is sometimes easy to banish the contemporary nightmare to the limbo regions of thought. While we may understand the logic of capitalism in theory, the gap between theory and practice often prevents us from embracing activity that is driven by the logic of revolutionary necessity. The contradictions of the system are more apparent in the peripheries. At the centers, they are muted by a, quote, culture industry, unquote, that persists only because of the most brutal exploitation and oppression elsewhere. Is it any wonder that the imperialist camp's longest war, the war on terror, is not even experienced as a war by the masses who live at the centers of capitalism? Some of us have grown to adulthood with this war serving as an early childhood memory, and yet, unlike those who have grown up in regions such as Afghanistan, have been able to live without experiencing the most direct and brutal effects of what George W. Bush once called without irony, quote, the task that never ends, unquote. From its very emergence, capitalism has waged war upon humanity and the earth. The communist necessity radiates from this eternal war. Capitalism's intrinsic brutality produces an understanding that its limits must be transgressed, just as it produces its own gravediggers. How can we be its gravediggers, though, when we refuse to recognize the necessity of making communism concretely, deferring its arrival to the distant future? One answer to this problem is that those of us at the centers of capitalism are no longer the primary gravediggers. The permanent war capitalism wages upon entire populations is a war that is viscerally experienced by those who live at the global peripheries. Lenin once argued that revolutions tend to erupt at the, quote, weakest links, unquote, those overexploited regions where the contradictions of capitalism are clear. Thus, it should be no surprise that communism remains a necessity in these spaces. It is at the peripheries we discover people's wars. Conversely, opportunism festers at the global centers. These imperialist metropoles where large sections of the working class have been pacified, muting contradictions and preventing entire populations 
from understanding the necessity of communism. Capitalism is not as much of a nightmare here. It is a delirium, a fever dream. Simply recognizing the current situation, however, is not enough. Often, such a recognition embraces the very opportunism it claims to critique, a recognition of opportunism that is opportunism itself. We cannot make revolution here. There are no cracks in which to build a militant organization capable of fighting capitalism at the global centers. We might as well wait upon the revolutionary labor of those comrades in the global south to save the world for us. We will embrace opportunism by declaring it an immutable fact. Again, the horizon is placed beyond our reach. Breaching its limits is the business of others. Communism is no longer an historical necessity if we fail to transgress the limits set by capitalism and are instead catapulted into the post-apocalyptic nightmare promised by the latter's intrinsic logic. In such a terrible event, if humanity survives only to find itself in another ice age or devastated wasteland, it will encounter other necessities that are similar to the necessities encountered in the pre-capitalist past. How to persist as a species, how to build sustainable societies, how to produce historical memory. There will not be an eternal communist hypothesis when our existence is determined instead by more immediate questions of survival. The necessity of communism is immediate now. In order to bring this necessity into being, though, we must learn to accept what has been established through every past, earth-shaking revolution that has also attempted to push beyond the boundaries set by capitalism. It may be the case that, in one sense, communism is the permanent dream of everyone who lives in a world strangled by capitalism, through a nightmare for the ruling classes. In another sense, however, we should stop thinking about communism solely as a dream, a fantastic horizon, and instead understand the ways in which past movements have temporarily made this dream concrete, briefly but significantly succeeding because they reverse the terms of dreaming. Capitalism is the nightmare, communism the awakening. Often we would prefer to dream because it is easier. Waking is never pleasant, especially in the early morning when, upon opening our eyes, we realize we have to go to work, clean our homes, raise our children, and deal with a host of concrete responsibilities, necessities, that we could forget while we dreamed. Hence, communism should be approached as an awakening. In shaking off the nightmare of capitalism, the dreamers will also be shaken by the arduous tasks they must accomplish. Once again, as Mao reminds us, revolution is not a dinner party, nor is it a dream, a utopia, an eternal hypothesis, a distant horizon. But it is a necessity that is growing more immediate every year capitalism persists, a necessity that might vanish if and when capitalism's death throes obliterate existence. In Borges' story, Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote, we are introduced to a fictional author, Pierre Menard, who set himself the task of reproducing Cervantes' Don Quixote. Not, quote, another Quixote, which is easy, but the Quixote himself, unquote. Rather than a rewriting of the same story in modern times, a reinvention of the proverbial Quixotic wheel, Menard ends up producing passages that are identical to the passages of Cervantes' original. And yet, as the narrator informs us, 
Reproduction is impossible despite the word-for-word -word duplication. The different historical contexts in which the same passages are composed changes the meaning of both form and content. He concludes that Menard's version of the Quixote, though at first glance a reproduction of the original, is superior. Similarly, where movementism demands a modern rewriting of the story of communism, we should demand a reproduction that is at the same time not a reproduction. By rearticulating the theoretical weapons of the past now, by creatively reasserting universality in today's particular instances, we will remember everything we were taught to forget. And in this remembering, painful as it might be, we will find ourselves standing on the shores of necessity.